everyone, and welcome to Oops, I Dad It Again, a podcast by dads, about dads, but for everyone. My name is Ben, and I'm a dad. And my name is Matt, and I'm a dad. And today we have a special guest, my friend Dan. Dan, say hi. Hi. Yes, Dan is a friend of mine from college. We were in an acapella group together, and he is very uniquely positioned to give us some excellent advice. Dan, would you take a second and just introduce yourself and what you do? Uh, Yeah, so I am an OBGYN um, who is doing further subspecialty training. So I'm in my second year of maternal fetal medicine fellowship. Um, Most people know us as the high-risk obstetricians. We are the experts in medically, surgically, and fetally complex pregnancy. Awesome. I have so many questions for you. You don't even know. I just realized based on your qualifications. So this is excellent. This is awesome. Yeah, right. I mean, when I, when I, we started doing this podcast and I was like, we're going to do an episode leading up to pregnancy and all that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to get Dan on this podcast. He's perfect. And Dan, this is, I mean, this is historic. You're the first guest that we're having on the show. So I'm honored. (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh. You should be, even though you know, we're not that fancy, but anyway, okay. Let's start out with a softball. Are you ready? Hit me. The first question that I have for you is sympathetic pregnancy. Number one, how the heck do you pronounce the official name? It's like Kuvad or something, Kuvad syndrome. And number two, is it even real? So I'm going to preface my response in that I haven't had a cisgender male patient since medical school because I am an OBGYN. No, that's fair. I guess I didn't (laughs) really think about that, but go ahead. So I think you're right in the pronunciation. I don't know a lot about it. There are some psychological hypotheses as to what it can cause. It's it's not very well studied, from my understanding, which is sort of a theme in pregnancy in general. Oh. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Well, the only information I really have on it is from a literal, like, the Pampers website that's telling me that, like, it, there's, like, a weird historical context for it, but there's no legitimate scientific evidence. So it's kind of interesting to hear you say that as well. Yeah, I mean... It, it, it's just, it's not something I've ever come across in my career. I'll put it that way. No, that's fair. And for those, apparently, I didn't realize people didn't know what sympathetic pregnancy was. Matt, I had no idea example. until you brought it up in our pre-chat chat. <laughs> yeah. So sympathetic pregnancy, for those who aren't sure what it is, is kind of exactly what it sounds like, where like men who are either husbands or in some way related, or I guess connected to a pregnant woman also start to experience pregnancy symptoms like morning sickness or uh, weight gain or things of the sort. So I just, I had to ask, is it real? Is it not? But you're telling me that you don't have a lot of experience with it anyway. No. Well, it was worth a try. And it just sounds like dad's eating a lot of food along with their pregnant wives, to be honest. That's it. It's like a good excuse to just get that extra chicken finger, chicken finger at the dinner, right? Yeah, exactly. I yeah. mean, we we do know that there are like brain chemistry changes that happen in fathers mm-hmm. who are expecting. Like, like fathers can also experience uh, like a postpartum, postnatal depression. Oh. Um, it's uncommon, um, and, but it, it has been reported before. So. The like basis behind it, it, it's possible. That's really okay. interesting, actually. That, yeah, I had no idea that men can experience a postpartum depression. 
I think the underlying mechanisms are different. Like for, like for, um, for people who give birth, um, the thought is that like the massive deprivation of progesterone after birth, Mm. because you don't need the progesterone to sustain the pregnancy anymore, um, leads to brain chemistry changes that increase the risk of developing depression. We don't quite understand why it happens in men because they don't have those hormonal fluxes. Right. Right. It's also, once again, not nearly as common in men, but it can happen. Sure. That's really fascinating. That is, yeah. Matt. I'm going to turn to you. Did you have any? No. Well, shaking your head. No, <laughs> not that I know of. Right. No, but I okay. think that that's an interesting thing. Like there's, there was probably changes in my just mental st- status, but also physically too, maybe, you know, around my wife being pregnant. Um, and just, it, it's interesting how body and chemistry and those connections between two people uh, can affect each other. Yeah. So that, not that I know of, but. It it is a yeah. whirlwind of things. So, yeah. <laughs> I say, I'm sure you're experiencing a lot of emotions as it is. Anyway. Exactly. Like, I just I feel like I don't know. I wonder if there's like a pheromone thing to it. I don't know. Just me spitballing stupid ideas. But like you know how like random side note like women if they're around each other very often they're like cycles will sync up. I don't know if it's anything like that. I don't know. So that's actually proven to be false. Oh, it is. I didn't know that. Tell <laughs> yeah. me more. So, um. We, we always say that 28 days is like the like average length of a menstrual cycle, but there's huge sure. variation. And so a lot of times the like quote unquote syncing up phenomenon is actually just people of different cycle lengths, like happenstance oh. falling at the same time. Yeah. So it's more coincidental than like, I, yeah. I guess, deliberate, if you will. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. That is. I did not, I genuinely did not know that. Yeah. I didn't either. I don't know why, but my wife always jokes mm-hmm. that she feels like her and her coworkers in the, you know, in the past have synced. Yeah. Well, now you can tell her that there's no evidence for that. I guess it's so. just coincidental numbers. I guess. Okay, Dan, well, let's do something a little more serious. My wife is entering very close to entering her third trimester, which is both exciting and also scary. Um, mm-hmm. what are like, so like we've gone through first trimester, we had some a little bit of nausea and like morning sickness. There was the super heightened sense of smell. Um, mm-hmm. second trimester was where the energy got up. We got some excitement and, you know, love for life, if you will, back. What, what are the big, like goal stuff, you know, milestones, things that I should be looking for or expecting in the third trimester? So in the third trimester, um, when we look at like trends in weight gain, um, it's really the third trimester where most of the like weight is gained. Like a fetus mm-hmm. is going to put on most of the weight it's going to have in the third trimester. And okay. towards the end of the third trimester, they're putting on about a half a pound a week. Wow. Um, and so that that's how you get your like big, round, beautiful Gerber babies. Sure. You know? Yes. Um, and so hey, wait, that's like one of the big you? things. That was an excellent way of describing the babies, the beautiful Gerber babies. Oh my yeah. gosh, it just put a smile <laughs> on my face. I'm sorry, continue. That was wonderful. Um, a lot of patients in the third trimester, you know, this is when you'll really start to see Braxton Hicks contractions mm. come on. So those are like the practice contractions where the uterus is, you're not actually in labor, you're just having practice contractions. Labor is defined as contractions plus cervical change. And okay. Braxton Hicks contractions don't cause your cervix to dilate. And so 
Um, so a lot of patients will have those in the third trimester. It's, you know, often with the third trimester, as patients become more pregnant, their uteruses expand. This is when back problems often kick in. So a lot of patients, mm. you know, may have like some back pain or even sciatic nerve pain. And that's because um, as the pelvis tilts to accommodate the growing pregnancy, it compresses the sciatic nerve. Okay. Um, and then some women will report like breast tenderness again or breast fullness towards the end. And that's really just like the breasts getting ready for milk okay. letdown postpartum. Sure. Um, can I cycle back to the Braxton Hicks contractions? Yeah. Is is there any way from, well, actually, I should ask from my wife's perspective, but also mine. Is there any way to distinguish those? Obviously, because we're not going to be monitoring her cervix directly from like true traditional contractions. So labor contractions are more intense and they're more regular. Okay. So like a patient who's having contractions every like 12 to 20 minutes, those are not labor contractions. A patient who's contracting every five to seven minutes, much more likely to be labor contractions. Um, not all contractions that are that frequent are labor. Sometimes your uterus can be a little irritable, especially if you're like dehydrated or if you have a urinary tract infection. Um, the uterus can respond to that irritation by contracting um, and often fixing the underlying source fixes the contraction problem. Um, so it's really hard for a lay person um, to tell. Um, and even for people who are pregnant for the first time, it can be difficult for them to tell sometimes. Um, oftentimes, once people have had a, have gone through a pregnancy once, they kind of understand what the difference is. Mm -hmm. um, but for you and your wife, it's going to be a little harder. Um, I'd say that if she's having trouble breathing through them and they're coming regularly, it's worth a trip to the OB triage. Okay. You know, Good always to know. better to go get evaluated and have it be nothing yeah. than to yeah. secretly be in labor. <laughs> so you're, you're kind of telling me that it's just like throwing darts at a dartboard and hoping for the best at this point. Cause neither of us have any sense of any of these things. Um, I mean, once you get to the obstetrician where we have more tools, um, sure. it's easier for us to tell, but, um, for you and your wife, it's, it's a little less informed. Okay. Fair enough. Matt, did your wife ever experience Braxton Hicks or are you unsure? I'm actually unsure to be honest. Um, so my wife was induced both times for both of our kids and she has um, hypertension. So high blood pressure. So they, they mm -hmm. monitored her very closely and were like, you are not going to go to 40 weeks. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so she was scheduled for inductions um, both times. And so I, I, I mean, I never experienced the, you know, counting contractions and how close they were or asking how intense they were or making the mad dash from, you know, dead, being dead asleep to driving to the hospital. I never had to do that. Um, hmm. and I'm, to be honest, I'm not missing it. I did not miss it. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, I, I, I think, I think she had some Braxton Hicks that she like picked up on for, our second, the second pregnancy, just because she had kind of like, mm. I think gone through it, the process, um, once, but I don't, I, not that I yeah. remember like vividly. So, so then Matt, let me ask you this. When your wife 
did finally experience, as Dan called them, traditional labor contractions, was that like clear and obvious? Like these are contractions that are happening and we need to go? Very clear, very obvious. Um, thankfully, we were in the comfort or whatever of <laughs> a hospital bed um, oh. in the whatever. I'm going to get this term wrong, but where you give birth. <laughs> um, and so, you know, she was like, all right, it's time to get the epidural. And so, oh, you know, okay. it didn't last. That's true. Too, too Cause, long. Because you. Yeah. OK, that makes sense. OK, cool. Um, all right. Well, that's great, Dan. All right. So now we're let's hypothetically fast forward a bit. We're through the third trimester. The day has arrived labor is occurring contractions are regular all that good stuff i mean without being too graphic considering this is an audio medium walk me through what what's the deal like if we come to the hospital what what happens okay so if you show up at the hospital and you're contracting regularly your your term you're going to be evaluated by a physician a midwife a nurse practitioner a pa whoever your hospital employs they're going to put um, your wife on the the external fetal monitor, um, and what that's going to and they're also going to put her on a tocometer. So they're two different things. the The electronic fetal monitor is measuring the heart rate um, mm. over time, and that tells us the if the fetus is in distress or not. Mm. Um, they're also the tocometer is a fancy word for saying contraction counter. Um, the tocometer is going to tell us the frequency of the contractions. It's the, it's also an external monitor. It's not very good at telling us the strength. It really just tells us the frequency. Okay. Um, and so they're going to put her on that. Um, they're going to examine. They're going to evaluate her. Most likely check her cervix. <laughs> um, yeah. And then assuming you're in labor. You're going to get brought to a labor and delivery room. Um, I'm not sure what your hospital does. In my experience, most hospitals have transitioned away from labor in one area, deliver to another, into just labor and delivery in in like one room, unless you need to go to the operating room. No, I believe. Now, Matt went to the same hospital that we're planning to go to. Matt, is that the case? Yeah, labor and delivery in the same room. Cool. As long as everything goes well. Yes. Yeah. And so once you're in a room, uh, most patients are going to continue to stay on that monitor through the whole labor course. Some low-risk patients are candidates for intermittent fetal monitoring, um, but you have to have a truly low-risk pregnancy. There's a very long list of exclusion criteria, and so it's really only the lowest of the low-risk patients who qualify. And even then, you know, you have to balance the desire for comfort to not be on the monitor against not knowing the heart rate status of the baby, et cetera. So it's it's an individual decision. So can I interrupt you for a moment? Yeah. Um, you listened to our fourth episode where I discussed my wife's condition, I suppose, with her ginormal fibroid. Right. Now, is she immediately considered what we would call a high-risk pregnancy? How does that work? So high-risk Without pregnancy having too much information, is, I suppose. Yeah. It's a it's an it's a broad term. So sure. from like a medical legal billing standpoint, like mm. if you have well controlled asthma that you rarely use your albuterol inhaler for, you have a high risk pregnancy. You know, oh. if you're over the age of thirty five, you're high risk. But high risk is a spectrum, you know. Sure. And so there are 
you know, your wife's condition, sure, she has a high-risk pregnancy. Does that make it a high-risk delivery? Well, it depends on a lot of factors. Um, In terms of whether or not she can stay on the mod come off the monitor for intermittent monitoring, if that's important to her, I don't have enough information to weigh in. No, that's fine. And I don't even really know enough to tell you. Yeah. But generally, high-risk pregnancy is a a broad term Um, in terms of, like, who actually needs to see, like, the high-risk pregnancy doctors. We try and have a much smaller umbrella um, because not everyone needs that risk of escalation. You know, it's actually, I would say, very comforting in a way to hear you say that it is such an extreme spectrum because just because you're quote unquote a high risk pregnancy doesn't mean that anything is going to necessarily go seriously wrong because it is such a broad term right yeah it really depends on the individual factors okay interesting okay matt anything on that at all no i mean the i think the monitors that belly band right dan like sits on Mm -hmm. And they like move it around to find the heartbeat. Um, I didn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't wearing it clearly, but I don't think <laughs> I don't think my wife found it too intrusive. To be honest, she wore it the whole time. So so when we went to the hospital a couple at this point a few weeks ago, um, they did. I remember the belly band very clearly because the they found the heartbeat in a position that like wasn't ideal for the band so like i had to kind of hold it in place is that the, or the right thing that i'm mm-hmm. thinking of dan yeah so yeah. they're having me hold it over because they counted for like 20 minutes they had to monitor the heart rate or something like that yep so yeah so that's okay interesting good to know um so anything else in terms of that process so we're in the labor delivery room hopefully labor all goes well what does it look like immediately following delivery um, well, I think we should talk about delivery first. Um, oh, yes, just a please. few. Yeah. So, um, assuming everything goes well, once you've hit 10 centimeters dilated, you now enter what we call the second stage of labor. There's three stages. The first is like oh. dilation. The second okay. is delivery of the fetus. And the third is delivery of the placenta. Ooh, and so okay. the, the second stage of labor for... How long it takes you to deliver your fetus depends on whether or not you've done it before and whether or not you have an epidural. And so the upper limit of normal for first-time patients, if they don't have an epidural, is three hours of pushing. And if they do have an epidural, it's four hours of pushing. And so... Don't, I always tell patients, don't be dismayed. If you've been pushing for an hour and you haven't really made a lot of progress, that's okay. You're still learning how to do it. So to lighten the mood a little bit, my wife and I were actually rewatching the show Glee. And there was the scene mm-hmm. in the first season where the... When Quinn gives birth while Jonathan Groff is singing Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I knew you would know immediately what I'm referring to. Anyway, she has been making the joke that, oh, the whole process only takes the same amount of time as Bohemian Rhapsody. And I just keep going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's just go with that for now. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it definitely takes a lot longer. Also, total sidebar. Yeah. I absolutely understood where you're going with that reference i watched it to the end much to my own chagrin um yeah but yeah yeah, ryan murphy knows how to take a show and make it great and then take it off the rails yeah (laughs) Yeah, you're not kidding 
You're not kidding. But I just thought it was funny to say, you know, well, not funny. I shouldn't say that because it's not a pleasant experience necessarily, but three to four hours. And my wife's like, oh, yeah, just Bohemian Rhapsody, right? I'm like, yeah, just on repeat for a few hours. (laughs) Right. And many times patients deliver sooner than that. Um, Hmm. There's just so many factors at play, including like the shape of your pelvis, the how Hmm. big the baby is, how dense your epidural is. You know, patients Hmm. with really, really great epidural where they struggle to move their legs may have a harder time engaging their muscles properly Hmm. to push. Sure. Um, I think the other thing that you need to brace yourself for and your wife should brace yourself for is the fact that everybody poops. Yeah. No, I knew that actually. Yeah. Like... I always tell patients, if you're pooping, it tells me you're engaging the correct muscles. And so pooping is actually a great thing. And so not to be embarrassed if and so when poop, poop happens, because we want, we, we are reassured. Poop is a plus. Yes. That's good. I wish my wife knew that beforehand, because I still oh. think to this day she feels embarrassed about it. I'm like, oh my goodness. It happens to everybody. Yeah. Well, that's like one of the things that I actually did know going into this. I don't know. I'm a science teacher and I've every now and then shown like the miracle of life video and they show the poop Um, in the process. Yeah. So I actually knew about that. So I give myself a little bit of kudos here. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, I think the other thing I'll just warn you about is think ahead as to what you're going to wear to the hospital, i.e. don't wear nice white sneakers to your wife's birth because birth is bloody. (laughs) Yeah. No, that was not my plan, but honestly, I hadn't put thought to that, so that's good advice. Right. Like, you don't need, like, just, like, you want to be comfortable and you want clothes that, like, maybe it's okay if you can never wear them again. That's totally fine. Interesting. Matt, I don't want to get too, like, weird, but, like... (laughs) Any, any relating to this? Um, no, thankfully. Oh, okay. Um, well, that's good. It's interesting hearing Dan talk about all of this. So my wife with our first was almost exactly four hours of pushing and she had an epidural. Um, our daughter was, I'm going to say this wrong. It's not a medical term, but she was sunny side up. So she was facing the ceiling. <clears throat> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so she uh, actually needed a little bit of help getting out. They had to use forceps. Um, uh, and, uh, and I remember vividly remember saying that I would not hold one of her legs and I'm probably am like the worst dad in the world because I made this poor intern, like hold one of my wife's legs and the nurse was holding the other. And I was just oh, no. holding my wife's hands because I, it just like, was like surreal and like, I don't know. It freaked me out. Yeah. Anyway. Like an out of body experience. Exactly. So what I will, what I will say as an obstetrician who's met a lot of birth partners with a huge variety of tolerances for the birthing process, Mm. being able to vocalize that you didn't have it in you to hold the leg puts you in a great spot. Because what I don't want to happen is you can't hold the leg properly or you get woozy at the sight of blood and you pass out. Mm. And all of a sudden I have two patients when I or three patients, technically when I only had two, right. you know? And so oh it's, it's, it, it, it's okay. Like Thanks, being Dan. able to vocalize your ability to, or not tolerate. No, um, I mean, I, I, appreciate what happens that. in birth. I, uh, I know myself 
pretty well. Uh, and I was like, no, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to do this. Um, this might be a quick sidebar, but I remember when my wife got her epidurals, um, our kids, Dan, are essentially two years almost to the day apart. And for mm-hmm. our daughter, it was perfectly fine for me to like hold my wife when she was getting it. Like I was able, like she was able to kind of like grip me while they were doing mm-hmm. the epidural. Two years later for my son, I had to sit in a chair behind a doctor. So I wouldn't pass out because I guess they've had like one too many dads pass out from watching the epidural process or something like that. And so I just thought it was so funny. (laughs) Oh my gosh. How the hospital had changed their, you're talking about extra patients, but you know how they had to change their policy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really great when birth partners have that insight into themselves to avoid those situations I I think what what happened is understandable, you know. I mean, we do similar things when we prepare patients for C-sections. We ask the birth partners to wait outside until we're all prepped and draped and ready so that you just come in and you spend the shortest amount of time in the OR possible. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. probably for the best. I don't want to speak for all dads, but I think it's got to be it would be an interesting experience to see your wife or partner with everything that comes along with a C-section. I didn't do do that either time, but I'm sure that's, um, uh, it would be just a different experience. <laughs> Scary, I would probably yeah, say, because yeah. there's a lot that goes into setting up and doing a C-section. Yeah, exactly. So I was just going to say, to answer your original question, Ben, about like what to expect during delivery. So like everyone always focuses on getting the baby out, which is like the star of the baby is the star of the show. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But, the baby comes out and then there's this whole, there's all this other stuff that has to happen next. So um, the baby will be assessed, might be, we use the term resuscitation very broadly. Like if I rub your baby to help stimulate it, to get to clear up its lungs, that's resuscitation. You know, not all resuscitation is just like CPR. Um, So, you know, they will assess the baby and resuscitate the baby. You know, if everything is looking good, you'll have the chance to, cut the cord after it's clamped um, or your wife can do it. If you don't want to do it, Um, it is, it's like cutting through a gummy worm. It's going to take a few snips. And so, Oh boy, I got to be honest with you. That's something that like, I'm genuinely not sure if I'm going to want to do or not. Matt, did you do it? I did it. And I'm glad I did. I don't, I know that's weird. I wasn't, I didn't want to hold a leg, but I'll cut an umbilical cord, you know, but wow, no, I'm like, I'm like nervous at the idea. So I'm really undecided on the topic yet. You have plenty of time to figure it out. Also, we set you up so you literally can't fail. I was just about to say, I was going to say, you can't mess it up. Okay. In that case, I might feel a little bit better about that. Cause that was, that was like part of my nerves. Like, what if I do it wrong? What if it's too long or too short? And what if it's, yeah. And then while the baby is being examined and hopefully being brought to mom, to mom for skin to skin, um, the obstetricians are working down below to make sure that the placenta delivers safely. You know, most, almost all patients deliver within the first 10 minutes, but the upper limit is technically 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so um, we work on that. Um, I think one of the things that you just need to prepare yourself for is that in obstetrics, things can turn a corner very quickly. Um, so it's, 
it's common to all of a sudden there's a lot of action going on, a lot of meds being called for, um, and it's all to prevent morbidity. Sure. Man. Yeah, because I just I would imagine like number one, I'm gonna there's gonna be a flurry of emotions because now there's a suddenly a baby, right? And then right. the chaos of calling for things and people moving quickly and things being shifting around. I, I don't know. I just feel like it can get very overwhelming very quickly. It, it, it can. It can. And it's okay to t- need to take a step back and sit down. Sure. It's, um, um, after the... Oh, sorry. Back on. I was just going to say, <clears throat> watching it, it's like every person that is in that room knows exactly what they're supposed to do. It's the most well-orchestrated operation for lack of a better word it's it's so actually amazing to watch everybody doing what they do and doing it so well it just it all flows and you you almost like i almost felt like i was getting in the way sometimes (laughs) you know Mm. so um so after the placenta is delivered um the obstetricians are going to expect most patients uh have a perineal laceration um where so that just means that uh some type of tear on the pelvic floor um and they're graded on a scale of one to four the average is a two most patients get a two and so and and one or two is not a big deal a three or four is a little more involved but those are uncommon um and they your obstetrician will talk to you about it if it happens sure interesting so like okay no matt you were gonna say something go ahead no i just you know I don't know. I feel like we had the weirdest birth experiences for both of our kiddos. I was saying how our first was um, four hours. Our second was actually four minutes of pushing. And Uh we're talking about, I was talking about that well-oiled machine. My son magically had tied a perfect knot in his umbilical cord and his heartbeat just went way down. And my wife and I actually had no idea what was going on at the time. But the nurse had pulled, like, the emergency thing. There was just, like, people flying in and out of our room. And the the doctor came in and said, you have to push right now. <laughs> like, there was just, like, there was no questions. Like, push now. Don't stop. Wow. And my wife, being amazing, uh, did it in four minutes flat. Um, but it was scary uh, looking back because of how severe that was. Like, she, I think she was, like minutes away from being taken to get a c-section i'm guessing right dan yeah i mean when you're in situations like that you know so the um the technical term for patients who are delivering for the first time is called primi paris and if they're delivering for a second time onward is called multi paris paris being like birthing person um Mm -hmm. and we always remark at like the the quote power of the multi you know when you've done it before, your body just knows what it's doing. And so I've been in very similar situations as an obstetrician that it sounds like you and your wife were in, where it's like, oh, the baby looks like it's in distress and you're complete. I need you to give me everything you've got. And then the baby comes flying out and the baby yeah. is screaming after and everything is fine. Oh, like, <laughs> yeah. The birth honestly was easier and better for my wife the second time than it was the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so wow the i have to say the imagery of the quote baby coming flying out is really speaking to me also a little scary but you know hey that's okay <laughs> um all right so 
I mean, keep rolling. So now in theory, all has gone well, ideally. Everyone cross your fingers, right? The baby is out. Mm-hmm. It's on the mother, making skin-to-skin contact. Where, where do we go from here? So at this point, you've got two separate patients. Um, and so the pediatricians are going to be the ones taking care of the baby as soon as that umbilical cord is cut. So your OBGYN is no longer in charge. And frankly, we... Like you want the pediatricians taking care of your child now that it's born, like because sure. we're outside of the area of, of expertise of an right. OBGYN. Um, with regards to like immediate postpartum care, so it de- depending on your hospital system, um, patients who have vaginal deliveries can expect to go home somewhere around postpartum day one, postpartum day two, assuming there's no complications. Um, in Oftentimes, first-time mothers will say more like postpartum day two because they need a little more help before they're ready to go home. Um, mm-hmm. Experienced mothers, I, I've had patients who in as little as six hours are like, can I leave yet? And I'm like, no, we'd like you to stay at least one midnight, please. <laughs> wow, six hours. They're just up and ready. Holy crow. They're, I, we're talking people who've had like four or five kids and they're like, yeah, this okay. isn't no, this isn't new to me. But they're familiar. We're going to. But we keep you in the hospital for a few reasons. We like a minimum of 24 hours because we want to make sure that you don't have what we call like a delayed hemorrhage um, where your uterus stops contracting down and you do start Mm. having heavy bleeding. Um, Bleeding is like uh, the biggest morbidity um, and source of biggest source of morbidity mortality worldwide. Um, And your body naturally stops bleeding by contracting the uterus to cut off all of the blood supply to those arteries. It no longer needs to supply the placenta. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the uterus has a clot that prevents the the clamping down, and then you have blood accumulation. And so we like to keep patients in the hospital make sure their uterus is nice and firm so that they have a low risk of bleeding heavily when they go home. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also, this is if this is the time when you may establish breastfeeding if that if that's what you're going to do and how you've chosen to feed. Um, sure. So patients can expect in the first few days to just have like a few ounces come out of time, and that's going to be called colostrum. Colostrum is not quite milk. It's useful to think of it as like a pre-milk. It's nutrient-dense, um, and you don't need to worry about the small volume because newborn babies, their stomachs are really only the size of like a cherry. They only need a few ounces at a time um, to get all of the nutrients they need. Patients who want to establish a milk supply and breastfeed um, are encouraged to put baby or pump to the breast at least every three hours. Um. And you do that around the clock. So you need to like wake up from sleep and put baby to the breast. If you're pumping, mm. you need to wake up and put the pump to the breast. And it can take anywhere from two to four days for that milk supply to really come in. And so a lot of patients will not have success in the first 12 hours. And it, I always remind them that it takes a while for your milk supply to come in, you know, where you guys are in Rochester, you have a lot of lactation consultants. Oh, um, and so, and I think both, I think all the major hospital systems, to my knowledge, employ them. And so take advantage of the lactation consultants because they're going to know things that even I as an OB am not going to know okay. to how to optimize uh, breastfeeding and all that. But they are wonderful sources of information. 
Sweet. That's really good to know. Awesome. Well, okay. Matt, anything to add or share? Uh, we They have lactation consultants <clears throat> at the hospital, and they, they pop in as many times as you need them to. Um, I remember uh, ultimately both of our children were formula fed, but I remember with our, our daughter, our first, um, they came in a bunch and tried to help, um, which was really great. Um, and they also, I mean, they helped with our son too. It was just different because I think we kind of knew the path that we were going to be going down many, you know, ultimately. Um, but they're great. Um, every, you know, the hospital staff is just yeah. phenomenal. So there's a reason we used to hopefully still call them heroes. All of those yeah. medical professionals. Oh, yeah. They're amazing. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, okay, Dan, I'm going to take this in a maybe sillier, lighter note. You've mentioned pre-show that you've delivered how many probably babies did you estimate? Oh, uh, pro- under a thousand, but like probably somewhere in the mid to high hundreds. The fact that we're even like referencing a thousand babies is, is pretty ridiculously incredible. So my first question is, did any of them get named after you? <laughs> I think maybe one. I don't remember very well. Yes. Hey, listen, um, one is still on the board, man. That's I awesome. I love that. Yeah. And I don't know if it was like after me or they were already planning on using Daniel. Like, I, I'm not sure. But I, I, there's like no, there's no patient who, who was like out of the movies, like, thank you so much. Let me name my baby after you. Like, I think if it happened at all, it was probably more happenstance. Listen, I would take it and run with it. You got at least one, and that's that's epic and awesome. So I love it. That's great. All right, and the second one, and I don't know. You may or may not have anything to share about this, but I want to know, like, what are some things that, from a like the dad's perspective, like, what are some of the most ridiculous things you've seen dads do during this whole process that you so wonderfully outlined for us? So, as as an obstetrician, I think the things that I define as ridiculous are the things that are just, that show an obvious lack of empathy towards your birthing partner. Sure. Um, so I've seen dads bring an Xbox and hook it up to the TV. And it's not like they're playing with the person laboring. Like, they're just like right. playing Xbox while she's contracting away. Oh my gosh. And you That's have a wild. lot of time to kill. Like it like I get it. <laughs> like I get that you need well, to kill time, but like maybe maybe do choose an activity to kill the time that is less less puts less focus on you. <laughs> yeah, let me ask you this though, because you mentioned you said and wasn't even playing with the person in labor. Have you seen someone bring an Xbox and play with the person in labor? I had a patient recently who she brought her Nintendo Switch and she it was early in her induction, but she was playing um, Tears of uh, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom oh gosh, while her induction was getting started. Wonderful. I love that. That's great. Um, and like she and, and her partner, I think they, I think they played some collaborative games in there as well. And then what, obviously what, like once her labor really got into gear and she couldn't really focus that like went yeah. to the side. Yeah. That makes sense. You know. That makes sense. But I just love the fact that they were, they were playing. That's great. Okay. What else? So Xbox, anything else that you've seen that's kind of like ridiculous that's I mean, out of the ordinary? Well, a lot of it is, 
a lot of it is the clothing you choose to wear. Once again, like I bring up the white shoes thing because like, if you're like a sneaker person and you're wearing these really nice, expensive shoes, then you don't want to get blood and whatnot all over them. Like maybe being in the the room isn't the move. And so just like, you know, I always tell people that like, it can be cold in the room sometimes, but like, Mm -hmm. don't, like wear a t-shirt under your sweatshirt. Cause if you need to go to the operating room, they're going to put you in a like sterile suit that gets very hot. So sure. you want to be able to like take on and take off your layers. Okay. Fair enough. Oh, and then I think like the last thing I was going to say is like, occasionally you have, um, and it's, it's, it's always dads. I've never seen female birthing partners ever do this, but there's always like, just like look a little intently, um, at like the repair process, and I'm just like, "Hello, oh, what, what are you doing? What are you doing here? What are you doing down here, bud? That's oh, not that's like, like, right now. That's super interesting. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's it's just it's it's interesting, and because in my head, I'm like, don't you want to like be up with your partner or holding your baby? Yeah, like, but instead so they're down there with you doing some reparations. <laughs> Um, well, they're not doing anything. They're just observing. Well, no, you're, you're doing it. Right. Right. <laughs> and so, I mean, the, the, the way you can be prepared is to just like have a, have a bag, pack some snacks. Cause like the dads don't always get to eat the hospital food. Yeah. You got to go and get your own food. So like yeah. have someone who can like bring you some food, um, when you need to eat, but have some snacks in your bag, have some water in your bag, have, a change of clothes, including fresh pair of underwear, fresh pair of socks, and clothing that you don't mind never wearing again if need be. Oh my gosh, that's really good advice. And honestly, packing, I don't know why. We've already started packing a bag, to be honest. But like, packing snacks was not at the top of my list. That's interesting. Definitely bring snacks. Definitely bring snacks. Okay, I'm going to go put some in the bag right now. You're going to get hungry and you can only eat so many tiny little packages of graham crackers with peanut butter. <laughs> no, that's fair. That is fair. Um, oh then bring water or something to drink too. Mm. I, I did not for our daughter. And I remember I stood up too fast and I like felt like I was going to pass out. And the nurses were like very concerned. This was not during birth. This was like. Because you both. hadn't hydrated. Yes. Yep. Interesting. So interesting. Take care of all yourself. All right. I, well, I'll try my best. Like I'm going to pack snacks, and I'll definitely pack up some water bottles. Um, all right. My last sort of silly question, and you may or may not actually have a legitimate off-the-cuff number for this, but just give me an estimate. Okay. Okay. Roughly what percentage of delivery partners do you see actually pass out? <laughs> oh, it's really uncommon. Oh, I, that's good. Less than 1%. Oh, yeah. Wow. Very good. Wow, honestly, so much lower than I thought it would be. Yeah, I yeah. thought we were well, in like I've, ten or twelve. Percent. I feel like mo- most of the most of the delivery partners who are that queasy mm-hmm. either tap out um, and have like someone else be there for the birth, um, or have the insight to just kind of sit down and stay out of the way. So they they know what they can and cannot handle. Yes, Matt is waving. Very That's good, me. Matt, with the with the whole leg <laughs> thing. Very good, 
Very good. Well, all right. I mean, Dan, I guess I'm going to kind of open the floor to you. Is there any other like something we didn't discuss that you feel is like super duper important that I should know? Yeah. I mean, I think like the things that I talked to about with all patients would be that one for patients who choose to try and have an unmedicated birth, more power to you. There's no shame if you elect for an epidural. Um, Having pain relief during birth was actually a big part of the first wave of feminism. And so I always tell patients, like, your foremothers literally fought for you to be comfortable during labor. And so there is, like, you did not fail if you decide you need an epidural. Um, I think the other thing is if you do end up needing a Mm C-section, that's also not a failure. Um, We as obstetricians, we don't take joy in doing C-sections, but they're a a necessary tool in our arsenal to keep both mom and baby safe. And so if that happens, it's understandable to be upset, but please don't feel like you failed. Um, Please just go in with a mindset of healthy mom, healthy baby, above all else. Those are the Um, ultimate goals. Right. And because there are both maternal and fetal reasons we could need to do a cesarean delivery. Um, And, and we do them because we are, we think it is the safest option. Awesome. I love that. It's funny. Yeah, I know. I was just going to say that's such like solid advice. It's funny because my wife and I have discussed um, her situation with the, uh, why am I blanking on the, the medications? Oh my gosh. Epidural? What are they called? Epidural. Thank you. My gosh. Epidural. Um, my wife, you know, we've discussed that and she has been like, oh yeah, I'm like, if that's what happens, that's, I'm loving it. Like, yeah, hit me up. It's all good. That's great. I will say that my wife does have some concern about cesarean sections, especially given um, there was mention of it maybe increasing probability given her fibroid situation. Um, but I keep telling mm-hmm. like, if it happens, it happens. That doesn't mean anything about you. doesn't mean anything about the baby. But like you said, Dan, the, the optimal goal is health of mother, health of baby. Yeah. I mean, and you never know how you're going to react until you're in that situation. But at least like right. trying to frame that mindset can just help you cope with what happens. Because there's so much in labor and in delivery that just doesn't go according to plan because life doesn't go according to plan. Right. Um, and so having your goals, but being flexible is going to put you in like the best headspace. Great. Dan, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on our show. This was, this was great. Even as somebody who's had two kids, it was great. Just to hear your perspective, you know, yeah. it's so different than being the birth parent or the the partner, right? Um, so this was this was great. Brought yeah. back a lot of mostly good memories. So that that's good. Mostly yeah. good. Mostly good. Well, and truth be told, it, you know, it eased some of my nerves. It increased some others, but it eased some of them. So that's good. Um, you know. Dan, I don't know what your schedule's like in, you know, the January and or February range, but like if you want to come back for postpartum stuff, we would love to have you back and we can discuss stuff there. Yeah, let's chat. Yeah, we'll figure something out. Well, great. Matt, anything else 
You kind of no. want to share, talk about, discuss? No, no. Okay. Just thank you, Dan. This is great. Yeah, really appreciate absolutely. It. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for having me. Um, so while we're on the topic of thanking, let's give a quick shout out to Jordan Kazen, who has designed our wonderful little logo. It's adorable with the little baby on the front. Thank you, Jordan. And I'll uh, give a shout out to Zach Burns for the wonderful music. Thank you, Zach, so much. Um, and this has been Oops, I Dad It Again. Our guest host here was Dan. I'm Ben. And I'm Matt. And until next time, don't, don't tell, tell mom. mom.